Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco. And before we get started, I just have two quick notes. Um, One is that uh, we do have a brand new website that I'd love for you to all check out. And you can find us at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. My second show note is um, a wonderful, exciting announcement about a new partner that I'm going to be bringing on to the show. And her name is Dr. Beth Dupree. Um, Dr. Dupree is the medical director for the Breast Health Program at Holy Redeemer Health System. And she'll be joining me for her very first show on Monday, April the 6th. So please stay tuned for that. We're going to have some really exciting um, information to share and, and some wonderful guests as well. So today I'm being joined in the studio uh, by Charlotte Sibley, and Charlotte is president of Sibley Associates. Um, Charlotte has a career that's spanned more than 40 years in the healthcare industry uh, with Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Bristol-Myers Squibb, uh, Millennium Pharmaceuticals, and Lipton. And she also spent three years on Wall Street at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Genret for the pharmaceutical industry. So I wanted to try to get most of your background in, and we have a lot to discuss, but welcome to the show. Thank you, Sue. I'm delighted to be here. I'm so I'm so happy to have you and um, thrilled to to talk to you for so many reasons. I mean, one is is the obvious. Um, accomplishments that you've seen through your career and the work that you've done and the firsts that you've experienced. Um, But we're going to talk about your background for a few minutes, as we always do. And uh, I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about your time growing up in Natick, Massachusetts. Sure. Natick is a suburb of Boston, about 16 miles outside of Boston. And uh, my mother and father um, lived there for a number of years. They moved there from Holliston because the schools were better in Natick. Um, when I was growing up, the Army labs uh, set up their research center in Natick, and that really boosted the science and technology interest there. Um, at the Natick labs, they were working on the materials for space walks and space travel and also food for space travel and um, some of the the long underwater um, submarine trips. So it was an exciting time to be there. And uh, my father was in quality control for a company called Fenwall, which made temperature control and fire suppression devices. And my mother was uh, a homemaker. Okay. And you were the youngest of two girls? I was the youngest of two girls. So my sister, my mother was very ill with ulcers and they didn't think that she could have another child. Um, the men of medicine said it would be too dangerous for her. And then the learned minds of medicine 10 years later said maybe it would be good for her to have a child. So all of this time, my sister had 
wished on every wishing star and every load of hay for a baby sister. And sure enough, there I came and I said, but what if I had been a boy? And she said, you were not going to be a boy because I wanted a little sister. <laughs> and that and was it. that was it. I had waited 11 years for one and there you were. Wow. So she uh, was very responsible. My mother was still weak and after uh, the birth and still ill. And she took care of me. She was extremely responsible and um, my mother could trust her implicitly. When my when no was said to my sister, it meant no. No to me was the beginning of a negotiation. <laughs> so my mother always said she should have had me first when she had more energy. But fortunately, right. there was my sister, and my sister and I remained um, very dear friends, my best friend throughout our lives. And she was just old enough that she could substitute. She chaperoned um, one of my high school hayrides, for example. Oh, okay. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, she must have been a mentor for you. Yes, she was. Yeah, that's a big span. Um, do you, ha- your mom, how was she years following that, following your birth then? How was her health? Finally, well, it's interesting, uh, that may have sparked my um, interest in the pharmaceutical industry because had some of the H2 antagonists, the first one, of course, was Tagamet and then Zantac, had those been available 30 years ago, my mother might have been um, suffered, uh, might have been spared a lot of suffering, or I should say 50 years ago, a lot of suffering. She ultimately had a subtotal gastrectomy, which was great. They removed most of the stomach, and she was able to eat things that she hadn't eaten for 30 Mm -hmm. years, which was wonderful. But I think the the understanding what medicines can do um, was re- a really powerful driving force for me, although I didn't realize it at the time. You didn't. Now, that was my question. You know, was that something that impacted your your interest in uh, in medicine there? I was. I always loved science. I found my sixth grade, I want to be, and it was a, um, a rocket scientist because that was the big thing then. So science was always there, but um, I had trouble seeing through a microscope. I have monocular vision, so I didn't go to medical school. Instead, I went into... Um, liberal arts. Okay. Um, one of the things that was a standout for me in, in doing my homework and reading about you is the fact that you graduated third in the class out of, uh, what is it, 467 students. Right. That's a big deal. I, I was the, the top woman in my class, yes. Yeah. Was yes. it an all-girls school? Oh, no, it was a mixed high school. Yeah. Mixed. I was in band and orchestra and chorus and all of those things. So, yes, and the the two, well, men now, boys who were ahead of me were, um, were I, I would say, certified geniuses. And, um, and, wow. I, and I was the top girl in the class. Yeah. Um, what did that mean to you? I, I think at that point I, I knew... I knew that I was smart, and we didn't use the word nerds then, but I also knew I was kind of a nerd. I mean, all the things that I did, um, as in band, orchestra, but those were all my friends also. And it was just, um, I was always achievement-oriented, and um, I didn't mind doing the work to get the grades, and, um, and it certainly paid off. Can can you say that your, your motivation and, and that... Um, uh you know, that challenge for you was an internal one for your for yourself? Yes, absolutely. My parents pushed me, but neither of my parents went to college. My father took specialized courses at Worcester Polytechnic Institute for quality control. My mother graduated from high school, which back then was she, she and her younger sister were the only two in her family who graduated from high school. So a lot of the push was um, internal for me. Mm-hmm. And the more, the more I pushed myself and the better I did, that was its own reward. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, 
Did you, um, you, you mentioned in your bio about the death of a very dear friend, your best friend. Mm-hmm. And um, I would imagine that had a, a, a big impact on you and your life. And I wonder if you can talk for a little bit about what that was, what that, how that changed your outlook on life. Um, well, my best friend was my sister, and she died a year ago of Alzheimer's. I didn't realize it was your sister. Yes, okay. and that, uh, oh, you know, that's goodness. really, it's a terrible disease. It's a very cruel disease. We're starting to make some headway on the pharmacologic side, but it's um, any chronic disease like that is terrible um, for the person and, of course, for the caregivers and the family. And it, even though you have some preparation for it, it's still very, very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, especially within a relationship like you had with her. Yes. And then to suddenly have that non-recognition. Do you see any, in the field that you're in, do you have any knowledge of any, um, you know, uh, things that are up and coming as far as treatment in that field? Yes, one company just this past week reported some very promising results early stage. Most of the drugs for Alzheimer's, there are a few out there, but... They have not shown, certainly nothing affects a cure. They may delay, diminish um, a a little bit for some people. Right. Um, But now it looks as if there may be some promising things, and a lot have failed um, along the way. But we certainly hope, uh, I'm not sure if it will be in my lifetime, but I certainly hope um, so that there will be um, interventional therapies for that. Yeah, I, my grandfather uh, died from Alzheimer's as well. So. Yeah, and I just see so many great strides, though, since then, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and we need it. Um, so you, you got your degree in, yes. in the arts in, uh, from Middlebury College. And so obviously that at that time, you were not thinking um, science. Um, what, what were you thinking? I went to Middlebury to major in languages when I decided I wouldn't, when I realized that probably medical school was not, um, was not the route. Um, I went there to major in French, and I, back then Yale didn't take women. Um, oh, yes, really? right, right. Wow. And um, I was going to go, uh, after I got my degree from Middlebury, I was going to go to Yale for a doctorate in Romance Languages, and I was going to be a professor of French literature somewhere. Okay. Um, I loved languages. I majored in French and German. I minored in music. Um, it was a wonderful, it's a superb school. It was a wonderful academic environment. Um, the professors concentrate and still do on teaching, not on consulting and not on writing books. Um, and and it's a small campus, and it was a wonderful education. Yeah, you're you're extremely well rounded. I mean, really, your your um, knowledge in, in a lot of areas. Is there a, a subject that that you struggle with? Solid geometry, because it, I couldn't see. I have I don't have three dimensional vision and I couldn't see well I had no trouble with calculus no trouble with algebra but when the teacher this was in 10th grade I guess would say pass a plane through the pyramid and what's on the other side and I had no idea I just couldn't see it and I really did struggle with that yeah Um, so you um, got your MBA in finance and marketing from the University of Chicago Booth grad school Right. What was your first job um, out of school? Um, I was hired by Pfizer as a market research analyst in their pharmaceutical division. And I was the first MBA they hired in market research. They had MBAs in marketing, um, but that was um, that was new. And I loved the idea. I had spent several summers on Wall Street. That actually is how I ended up going to business school, Mm -hmm. because I spent one summer at um, U.S. Trust Company and I was the only summer intern 
uh, the only female summer intern that summer and the following two summers. Um, I was their first female summer intern. All the other summer interns were male, and they were all going uh, for their MBAs. And I had heard of an MBA. I knew Harvard MBA. I knew that term, but I thought it was a master's in accounting. I just didn't really. That was not my frame of reference because I was on my way um, in um, in French literature. And uh, I ended up at the end of the summer saying, well, it's going to be four to five years for my doctorate and two years for my MBA. And this looks interesting. And the University of Chicago was very keen to recruit women, extremely keen. And I got a full ride scholarship the first year mm-hmm. and decided I would um, go to business school. And in the summers, I came back to U.S. Trust. And by the time I got my MBA, I thought the markets that really interest me um, are drugs and money. Um, which some would say are very much um, uh, linked together. But the I knew that it wasn't the typical consumer market that, that interested me as much. And when Pfizer came to the campus and interviewed, I was intrigued by their um, uh, their operation. They were um, much smaller then. It was a, was a company that was not known as mm-hmm. it is now. Uh, and it was great experience. What year was that, Charlotte? It was 1970. 70, okay. So I was one of 11, 12 women in my s- class at the University of Chicago with 310 men. Wow. A- and we're actually planning a 45th reunion in a few weeks and we're in, uh, in May, and we're trying to get all, as many women as possible to come back. Yeah, that's terrific. I love that. I want to know, you know, to me, to go into a, a field in industry that's predominantly male, um, you have to have some, you know, guts and backbone. And where did that develop in you? Was that something that uh, was instilled in you from your dad, perhaps, in, in the work that he did? Or what, did it come from your mother? Or was it just innate? I think some of it is obviously nature. Some of it is nurture, too. Again, because my parents didn't push me probably as hard as I pushed myself. But my father was a very diligent um, worker and a very good manager of people. And and I would hear him um, complain sometimes about the boss or about stuff. And that's why growing up, I never thought I would end up in business. Um, but as I um, as I spent my time at Chicago, I thought, well, this is really much more interesting. Or that those first couple summers on Wall Street, much more interesting than I thought. And then I, I think understanding that this was much more, um, there was much more to it, much more complex um, than I realized. And it, it really was data driven and things like that, that, that it wasn't just gut. Well, a lot of it was, but it shouldn't be. And yeah, it, it shouldn't yeah. always be. And having right. the opportunity to make data driven decisions on the basis of market research. Um, that's a very long-winded sentence. Uh, <laughs> that's but, okay. But I, I think that so much of it was really, I, I saw things, I, I always had a great sense of curiosity. My mother said I was born asking why. Mm-hmm. And because I said so was not a valid answer. And um, <laughs> much to her dismay. Uh, but I think going into a field like marketing research and competitive intelligence and strategic forecasting and all those groups that I've built, that satisfied a lot of my curiosity. And it was always just very interesting to yeah. me. Yeah. Were you one of those people that you would ask a question and if the person didn't know, you would say, do you know somebody who does know? Potentially, <laughs> yes. Yes. Or how can I find that out? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, gosh, you know, you really are involved in a lot of a lot of different things, and you sit on seven diff- different boards. Um, I want to know what your strategy is for collaborating successfully, because that's a big 
thing you need um, when you sit on a board and everyone comes together and they're trying to determine, you know, goals and and where money is going to be spent. What has been your um, strategy, because you've been successful at it, in collaborating and getting people all kind of to come to the same place? I think the first thing is to listen. And someone said, there's a reason we have two ears and one mouth, and it should be in proportion to that. But to listen carefully and make sure, I try also to come from a place of what do we have in common as opposed to where are the differences, and then say, all right, if the if our strategies are differing, if we've got different objectives, the other thing is to make sure are we aligned on the mission and the objectives. And a lot of times then how we get there, all right, then we'll have a discussion about that. But I think listening honestly and faithfully to the other person's point of view and then trying to say where can we work together, how can we make this work? Because at the end of the day, it has to be a team effort. I've always been much more about the team. I can, I myself can do only so much. Yes. And without my team, uh, I'm, I'm probably not going to do very much at all. So making sure, and if you're in a board situation where you do not have influence, you have influence over the people, but you have no authority over the other people. So having, um, we talk about fierce discussions about the issues, but then walking out aligned. We have to make sure if we as a board of directors are not aligned, that is, um, that's really, uh, as my husband would say, death on a cracker um, for the management <laughs> and for good, I've never heard that expression. Good, his law professor at Brooklyn um, Law School used to use that expression, and I love it. Yeah. Um, but that that is really dangerous if that doesn't happen. Yeah, it, it really is, is, you know, what you need to, to make anything move forward. Can you, you know, in light of that, can you talk about the differences you've experienced over the years sitting on, not just boards, but in your career, working with groups that are more diverse versus being in a room full of men, perhaps, and yourself, or uh, more females in a group? So I've always hired uh, very diverse employees because I think that makes for the strongest departments the widest range of opinions of analyses and again running groups like competitive intelligence and strategic forecasting trying to understand what are going to be the drivers in the future and identifying some of those black swans and what we might do about it the more diverse a group of people you have in terms of background education experience the more likely you will be to come up with uh, the range of outcomes that you're going to face and right. what you need to do about it. So in in many ways, then, having been one of the few women in business school, that certainly prepared me for being in a um, more male-dominated uh, environment. On Wall Street, when I was at Donaldson, Lufkin, and Jenrette, I was the only woman analyst. Um, there were women research assistants, but I was the only analyst. And I think a lot of it, it's being confident, speaking up, I think sometimes the difficulty is that women in groups of men will feel, can feel intimidated about mm-hmm. speaking up. And what I've noticed is that men interrupt women, but they interrupt other men also. And sometimes when you just have to be bold and be out there. And at my very first public board meeting, I thought if I sit and wait too long before I ask a question, or make a comment, I might feel intimidated. There were two other women on the board, and within 15, 20 minutes, I made a comment, and then um, then I was fine. That that worked for me. 
I also had a colleague on that board. We were um, elected to the board at the same time, and we brought the pharmaceutical industry expertise, and we sat across the room, the, across the uh, the board table from one another, so we could provide support to one another. Yeah. And I found that that's very, very helpful, having a peer in my corporate life, having a peer peer coach, mentor, somebody who was at my level, and we would debrief right after a meeting to make sure that we were supporting one another. Yeah, that that's critical. And I, I love the idea of, you know, don't wait, you know, speak up immediately in a meeting and get kind of get it over with, right? Get your, your words out there. Um, I, you have had many firsts in your career. And um, just for example, you built the first competitive intelligence group in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, these firsts, what do they mean to you? And is it something, um, again, that motivates the work that you do? Do you find it kind of exhilarating to, to accomplish something that's never been done before? Yes, and that's certainly part of the motivation. And also, I think keeping an eye on the business, what was right for the business. And I can't take credit entirely for that department. Um, There was a man reporting to me um, uh, who was a PhD. He had been in the R&D function, and he had the idea for it. He had run the Squibb Library, and he had the idea, and together— um, he lay, he laid out the plan, and then I went to a number of ma- uh, people in management and made sure that that was what we what we were all aligned about doing. And I think that's the the idea is one thing, but it's getting it implemented. And I think some of the lessons learned there of the perseverance, the persistence, the energy that it takes, um, because anybody can have ideas. Fred Hassan at Pharmacia said, you know, strategy, everybody's got the same strategy. What's going to differentiate us is the implementation. And that it's almost a sheer slog of getting it implemented. That's what I think, that's where the exhilaration comes from to say we did it. These There were a lot of obstacles, we did it, and now look at the impact on the business. And we were able to identify things um, that were going to change how we acted in the marketplace. Was there an experience in your life, that a first experience, where you, um, you saw that happen and that kind of propelled you to want to do it over and over? I think certainly building that group was one of the first. first. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then we went through some management changes and we had to realign it a little bit. But um, then uh, then a couple of years later, we were able to almost relaunch it sort of bigger and better. And that was great because then we had the opportunity to really go out to the entire corporation and say, this is what's here and what's offered. And then suddenly we had more than we could uh, handle in terms of business, but that's okay. I, and I think that's part of it too, to, uh, you know, one thinks that um, if you just say something, it will happen. Uh, what, what is it they used to say in Star Trek, the next generation, make it so? It, it would be wonderful if it were, but it yes, isn't. Right. It isn't. And what you have to do, and those were some of the lessons I had to learn that you have to keep at it. You have to keep persevering. I've heard CEOs say that some of the messages that they're delivering to get throughout the corporation that that they're entirely sick of the messages of saying it, but it's just starting to penetrate mm. at levels. And I think, again, that speaks to the diligence that we have to have. If you want change to happen, it usually is slow and it takes a lot of effort, but the rewards are great and that's exhilarating. Yeah. Early in your career, did you feel you had to present yourself and speak um, 
like men do? Or were you comfortable in your own, um, you know, what I would say, feminine um, communicating skills? And that's a good question. I think when I first came into the business world, there were so few women. And, and I remember thinking that some of them were probably not ones that I wanted to model myself after um, or couldn't model myself after for various reasons. And that I was just going to be myself. One of my favorite expressions is from Oscar Wilde, and it's be yourself. Everybody else is already taken. Yeah, I love that. I and, do love that. Love. And, you know, that's and one of my my um, corporate friends at one company said that she put on her corporate face in the morning. And I remember thinking, but doesn't that take a lot of energy and a lot of work to be two different people? And it does take a lot of work. Right. I didn't have that. I have a lot of energy, but I didn't have that kind of energy. Right. I could only be one person. At yeah. It. Yeah. So that's why I just decided that's not to say that that there's not conformity, because, of course, there is. And when we were at Johnson & Johnson, the men and the women all dressed in dark blue suits. We were in one of the hospital products groups, the original Johnson & Johnson, dark blue suits, white, maybe pale blue shirts and red ties and in the 80s. And we all looked the same. Oh, it's so it was, boring. It was. It yes. was. I had so many red ties. But, but, um, it, but that's okay. That's one. That's a conformity. But I still had, in many ways, I tried to keep my own style just because otherwise... I, I fe- always felt that I had to be, we use the word authentic now, mm-hmm. but otherwise it just takes a lot of energy. And then you can't remember who you were with what person. Yeah. Well, you know, you really were ahead of your time. I, you really were because uh, so much of what we talk about mm-hmm. in here on this show is that authenticity and being yourself and, and you know, really holding true to your to your core. It's not always easy, right? And I think no. it's it's harder for women just because historically we have not had an opportunity to be um, in a place to make change and, and make a difference. Um, I, I love the fact that you say, you know, you, you knew right away to be yourself. And it kind of reminds me of this imposter syndrome that we talk about. What are your thoughts on that, the imposter syndrome that women tend to walk around with? It is exhausting. It is exhausting. Yeah. And I think... And I'm not sure um, whether I, I don't think I ever felt it. I've certainly heard it, uh, feeling that I got here um, by other, uh, because I'm an imposter. I think maybe, was I grounded enough? I'm not sure. But that I knew that I had worked hard and um, and I was passed over for a promotion at times. And I, I've been fired and I've had, you know, a lot of, and acquired and, promoted and demoted and all of those things. So I think that helps build reality and grounding too. And just say, this is, if I see something that I want to go for, um, I'll, I'll try to go for it and I'll try to fight for it. But sometimes it doesn't happen. And then you just have to, um, you know, buckle up and, and get with the program. Yeah. So, well, that's interesting to me. So you weren't really on a straight trajectory. You had, you know, two steps forward, one step back. What, my goodness, what did that um, experience of being fired teach you? What did you take from from that? It was extremely enlightening. And I was honored by the Healthcare Business Women's Association in 2008 as their Woman of the Year. And at the luncheon in New York, um, 2,500 people at the Hilton, I talked about that experience. And someone had said to me, people want to know when you get to your level that it's not all been Skittles and beer. Um, and I talked about <laughs> the, the beer. Um, and I talked about the experience. They, I really um, irritated um, the the president of the division, who, by the way, was subsequently under um, SEC um, 
indictment for um, stuffing the pipeline and fraudulently um, misstating earnings and sales so and revenue. So, I mean, this was, you know, this was a very, very um, difficult person, um, a bully. He was a bully. And I was speaking truth to power. They didn't like it. And they fired me. And they wanted to make an example, I believe. And they made it they made it uh, professional. So my comments in my speech were, as my boss read me the list of my failings, I felt that I was, as they say at Wharton, Gumba, G-U-M-B-A, um, genetically unable to master basic activities, like putting on my contact lenses and finding my way to the office. Um, they, I think they really, somebody said to me, they really wanted to destroy your self-confidence. They also made it very personal. They wouldn't allow any of my staff to take me to lunch or even to breakfast. Wow. But one person did smuggle in a box of donuts. Okay. Um, and they cut off my email so that I couldn't send um, messages, uh, goodbye messages to people. Um, one of one of my colleagues sent out a message saying Bambi's been shot. Um, oh my goodness! Which, so, yeah. but you know, they uh, I I think that really made me stronger because I wouldn't I wouldn't let it happen. I would not let them do if that if that were their objective. Um, and I think the lesson that I learned from that is um, you really find out who your friends are. And some of the people that I expected would be there were not. But it was amazing how many people came up to me that I'm, I would not have expected, I wouldn't have thought of, who came up, walked alongside me, really reached out a hand. It's absolutely amazing. And the, the lesson that I learned is, in cases like that, pass it on. When I see people in those situations, and I've seen them in companies, and somebody said to me, you should not be having lunch with that person. You know she's going to be fired. And I said... All the more reason that I should have lunch with that person. You know, it's really that kind of now you're tainted good. So that was a very powerful lesson for me. Yeah. Um, kudos to you for, you know, coming that out of that. And those people that stood by you saw your integrity. They they saw that. Um, Charlotte, we're going to take a quick break. Um, and when we come back, I'd like to get your take on what kind of keeps women stuck in positions that they're not fulfilled in. We'll be right back. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. Our ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined in the studio today with Charlotte Sibley, and Charlotte is the president of Sibley Associates. She has had a a 40-year career in in the pharmaceutical industry, and um, I I love your take on, and, and this is for executive women, you know, what do you think it is that keeps them stuck in a position that they're not fulfilled in? Like anyone, sometimes fear. Um, inertia is also a very, very powerful force, inertia and gravity. And 
uh, sometimes it is not possible for them to take the chances that they might want to. But I think a lot of times for women, it's also asking. Uh, we have to ask for what we want, um, whether it's a raise, whether it's that next promotion. Um, it's been said that men are promoted on a potential. Women are promoted on um, experience, on on um, what they've done, what they've actually done. And I think we have to make sure that everybody knows that we have the potential also. That means networking. Women have to get mentors. Actually, sponsors and advocates are just as important, maybe even more important, someone uh, at a very senior level who will be advocating you, who will be sponsoring you, and will be looking out for you. Mm -hmm. Mentoring will help on certain specific situations and ways of acting and things like that and the culture, how we do things around here. But I think having a high-level sponsor advocate is absolutely critical today, just as many, many men do. Keeping your networks fresh. Frequently, women will be too often put their head down and do their job and bring their their lunch to their desk kind of thing you have to get out and be and get out out and be seen go to the cafeteria have lunch with people be out network be seen and make sure that it's not just what you do um it's it's not just who you are and what you do but how you do it and making sure that people know what you do. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't talk about it, I think women have to make sure that we're very good at self-promotion. We typically have not been as good at that. And that's part of it also. If you have a sponsor advocate, they can do the self-promoting. They can do the promoting for you. But we have to be ready and willing to um, blow our own horn at times, too. I think one of the things that helps with that is just being curious, right? Wanting to learn and know more outside of your immediate, um, you know, role or um, to-do list, right? Yes. And and that's it. Absolutely. Volunteer. Volunteer for tough assignments. There are no sweeter words to a manager than, I will fix that. Can I take that off your desk? Can I help you with that? How about if I take this section of it? That really can help get, certainly build experience, gain gain um, exposure, shows that you're a team player, and that person may then turn into your sponsor advocate. Can you, can you describe in, in just a sentence or two, what is the difference, again, between a mentor and a sponsor? So a mentor is more how we do things around here. You've got a situation with the coworker, or you've got a situation how, how you're acting. It might even be how you dress, potentially how you carry yourself, how the um, internal customs. A sponsor is usually someone at very high levels who will uh, effectively advocate for you and say, this position is coming up. Why don't we see if um, I think Jane would be a good fit for it. Let's, let's try her. Let's put her there, again, on potential, not just on past performance. Okay. Is there someone in your life that you consider a mentor that has really, you know, had an impact on your career? And that's an interesting question because I don't think I learned these terms until probably halfway through my career when they started to become, probably not till mid to late 80s did did we start to talk about them. I would say that my mentors tended to be um, some of my best bosses who hired me, who were there for me, with whom I would talk about uh, opportunities, usually after uh, um, I reported to them. But my boss at Johnson & Johnson, my boss at uh, Medical Economics, I would continue to be in touch with them about opportunities. And they probably are the closest thing to a mentor that I've had. I would say that the mentor is someone who believes in you, 
right? Yes. Gives you that sense that, that they just believe that you're going to be able to, to come through um, on a job. Yes, and we'll help you do that. Yes, and we'll help mm-hmm. you, yeah. Um, I, I would love to know if, if a, a moment, a project, um, an accomplishment comes to your mind, if I were to ask you, what are you most proud of? One of the things I'm most proud of is that when Pharmacia was being acquired by Pfizer, it was a 10-month-long um, period that this went on. This is a long time to sustain performance, to sustain motivation, um, to sustain uh, um, focus on the business. And I had built a, a large group, over 150 people. Most people stayed, almost everybody stayed, which was terrific. And everybody continued to focus on the business and the results. We certainly stepped up training and interviewing techniques and resume techniques and things like that. But I think keeping people motivated and then making sure that everybody got good jobs um, afterwards was one of the, for me, the proudest things in my career. Yeah. Is there is there something that you haven't accomplished in your career that you still dream about doing? Not particularly, no. No, I can't think of anything specific. You've been very happy in this in this one industry, right? Yes, and, and kind of yes. have stayed mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. I I had two years in Lipton in consumer products, and it was terrific experience. It was hardcore, heavy duty market research, and it was great experience. But I really didn't care about the products. Um, I was single. I lived in New York City. I went to the opera. I didn't, you know, I knew I wasn't the typical consumer, but it just it didn't resonate with me. And I have a very dear friend from Natick High School, from junior high who has been a very senior executive in the food products in the consumer area. And we talk about how um, the pharmaceutical clientele, that market really intrigued me and the consumer markets really intrigued her and, and expressing almost amazement that, that, you know, how we're so different and, and how we're so enthused about our respective markets and not really being as interested in the other ones. It's very interesting. (laughs) Right. Very different markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, What has been one of your biggest challenges? And when I say that, I mean, in day to day, you know, the work that you have to do, what is something that you struggle with? Keeping balance and making sure my husband says I'm busier now with my boards and all of that than in the corporate life. So I think making sure that I I make time for exercise and taking care of myself also for the things that he and I want to do. We're avid theater and opera and and orchestra goers and Mm -hmm. um, and just sometimes time to be, too. So it's that universal challenge. And I think the lessons that I always try to to pass on when I'm mentoring people is we can have it all. Um, Women can have it all. Well, men can too, certainly, but just not all at once, probably. Yes. And different times in our career. So volunteering for organizations, if you have a full-time job and young children, that's probably more than enough right Mm now. Right. And don't worry about volunteering for organizations so much now. There will be time later to give back. And again, to, to balance those phases throughout your life. Yeah, well, you know, we we talk about balance a lot, and I think it's you're so right that you you know there's many things you can be doing, but you can't try to do them all in a single day. Right. Yeah. And I used to say to all my my folks, in any given day, we've got 24 hours, two hands, and one brain. I can do a lot, but I'm limited by those things and remembering that. And sometimes also the mantra of sometimes good enough is good enough, 
And I think oftentimes for women, that's very difficult. We yes. tend, I certainly want to do everything, you know, oftentimes at 120%, but I don't need to. Right. Um, sometimes uh, 100% is fine, 80%. If we're at 60%, I need to be asking myself, should I be doing this at all? Um, but I think sometimes good enough is good enough. What, what are your thoughts on trying to encourage the younger generation of girls, young women, to go into the STEM field? Um, where we need more of that creativity and collaboration. That is really what brings success in those areas. What are some of the really strategic things we can do with young women to help encourage them to do that? I think making sure that um, they have good teachers. It starts, we everything that we read by 6th, 7th grade, that's when girls start falling away from STEM. Um, either because of bad teachers, either maybe because by then the boys have caught up. Whether that means segregated classes for a while of boys and girls, I don't know. But making sure that that interest is um, is nurtured and that it continues through high school so that they'll want to study it in college. More role models helps. And I think those of us in the industry and in science have to get out more and make sure that we're visible, whether it's speaking at Girl Scout troops or whatever it is to make sure that they know there were so many options that I just had no idea of when I was growing up. And really, um, the most visible ones were only three, uh, nurse, teacher, or airline stewardess as we called them then and you know right. and wow. and that wasn't if and when i said okay i'm not going to be a doctor now what so that i think making sure that that girls know of all the possibilities i lecture um at jefferson and i lecture at university of the sciences and many of these young women with um, phds in in the sciences knowing that they could go into academia they could go into the corporate world they could work for public health organizations that there are many many more options but you have to know about them that's right yeah there certainly is there's so many more choices today for, yes for both men and women mm-hmm. Um, what is your take on organizations and, and books like Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In? Some people take that as, you know, kind of more added pressure. We're not doing enough. And, of course, you know, people who stand by that um, believed that it, it was brave of her to say, um, I sit in a boardroom and I'm the CEO, you know, of Facebook, and I still was afraid to raise my hand. And that says a lot. And that is very brave to say. And I think a lot of women then were able to say, wow, so it, it's not unusual for me to feel um, to, to feel somewhat, if not intimidated, at least slightly um, anxious. And if when you are, uh, speak up, you were A, interrupted, B, talked over, which I've had happen, or C, someone else, usually a man, makes the same suggestion that you made, uh, five minutes later, and everyone says, that's a great idea, right. Joe. Um, and you want to say, well, am I chopped liver? Was was I talking to the, um, you know, the atmosphere? So I think for her to say it, that is great. There's no doubt that she's had a, a lot of opportunities that other women have not had. Right. She's made the most of those opportunities right. and good for her. That's right. I think being able to say, yes, be brave. One of her comments about don't step off until you're ready to step off. Absolutely. I had this conversation with a young woman mentee and she was um, going through IVF to get pregnant. She said, should I tell my manager? Absolutely not. Said, no, you don't say anything until you have to say anything um, because you don't know what's going to happen. Well, I'm up for a promotion and I may be moving. 
fine. Pursue the two parallel paths, but there's no reason for you to have to say anything. So I think that that for women, she could have really hurt her chances um, by speaking up too soon. She did ultimately get the promotion, and that's that's terrific. And the IVF worked, and everything worked out well, and that's great. But I think making sure that this is that we're not afraid to take those chances and you know what the other thing that i always ask too is so what's the worst that happens yeah yeah and if i can't live with the worst that's going to happen then i need to make a different decision but if i can i go for an opportunity it doesn't happen okay well that's all right will i have hurt myself probably not will i have done damage no and i'll try for the next one so i think that that message of Lean in, be brave, be bold, and take chances. And failure is okay. That's how we, I think we're so afraid of the word failure. Right. And it's okay. Right. And as I say in here often, failure is an opportunity to eliminate what's not working. Right? Yes, that's good. I like right? that. I yes. love that. I forget yes. who shared that with me, yep. but I love that. Um, don't be ashamed of those mm-hmm. those failures. You just checked one more thing off the list that wasn't right for you. Yes. Yeah. Um what would you say is the is the greatest lesson you have learned from some of the the awards that you've been given? Again, um, you've had a lot of firsts, you've had a lot of awards, um, you sit on a lot of boards. You're just incredibly active, you know, out there living life. What is one of the greatest lessons you have learned from these accomplishments? I'll say. I used as the basis of my talk for the HBA the acronym Pride because that encapsulated for me what I thought was really important. The P is for perseverance, persistence. The R is for resilience, which is absolutely critical. If we don't have that, you, you have to be able to get up. Um, if, you're, if you're knocked down, if you're demoted, if you're fired. Because we will bad. be. Exactly. Yeah. You're absolutely right. We will be. So right. learning that resilience and just go with the, the, um, the flow. I is integrity because once you lose it, that's critical. Um, and I think sometimes we forget how important it is. Your reputation precedes you. Mm-hmm. Um, the D is do good work. It's a given, but it's not enough. We have to do good work. We have to be um, careful. Um, we have to be conscientious, but it's not enough. And the E is is energy. We all, I think, need a sense of energy today to to wend our way through all of these things. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think learning those lessons and understanding how critical, those were the five things that, um, uh, for me, I thought both explained where I am today and sort of what keeps me going. Well, speaking of energy, what are you doing when you're not working (laughs) that helps you keep that energy up and and helps you de-stress? So music helps a lot. And we we were just at the orchestra on Saturday night. We have a subscription. Um, We have a mini subscription to the Metropolitan Opera in New York. My husband and I met on a blind date to the Metropolitan Opera. You did? Yes. Um, And we both went to Middlebury and we were both in the orchestra and we didn't know each other. So that tells you something. But it was 17, 18 years later that we met on a blind date and I thought he likes Mozart opera this is a good sign so <laughs> I do uh, too. you know and, we, and we've been together ever since so that yeah. helps reading I don't I don't make enough space to read and that's my own uh, my own fault cats are a wonderful de-stressor it's true when you pat cats and they're oh, purring yeah. they, they it really does de-stress um, theater good friends um, and sometimes just you know my husband is a much better cook than I am he'll make a wonderful meal and we'll just enjoy it yeah you have to have something 
right? Yes. Um, is there anything exciting happening in the in the field of pharmaceuticals that you could talk about, or or anything pertaining to your company? Well, I think so much of the excitement now is um, one area is immuno-oncology, using the body's own immune system to fight cancer. We always talk about cancer in terms of a battle, and that's what it is, if you know anybody who's been in it. And some of the advances, I think, that we're starting to see are really going to revolutionize, um, just as we've come a long way. And and when I was at first at Bristol-Myers Squibb in oncology, some of the survival rates 25, 30 years ago were not good. They're much, much better now. So I think we're going to see a lot of advances. Speeding up clinical trials so that we can get therapeutics to market um, sooner. One of the boards that I sit on um, produces genetically engineered mice and rats for clinical trials. And there is a lot, um, I know that there are some issues we'd prefer not to use any animals in clinical research, but that's not a possibility today. Mm -hmm. Um, In the future, I am sure it will be. We're doing stuff um, in vitro. We're doing stuff in, you know, in silica, as they say. I think that there are going to be a lot of advances there. I think the whole area, if we can focus on science and um, technology and all of that. I'm always worried about predicting the future. Who was it? Yogi Berra said it's tough to predict, especially about the future. Um, Something like, I think I've mangled it, (laughs) but but there will be, just as if we look from decade to decade, Mm -hmm. you know, what's been happening in some of these areas, diseases that have been cured. uh, scourges that have been wiped out. So I think that they they're look for more changes like that, more advances like that. Yeah, so true. It's, sometimes it's overwhelming to think what what is going to be going on, you know, 10 years, 20 years from now, if you look back and see the advancement that we've had. Right. And who could have predicted exactly. some of it? Exactly. Yeah. What is your take on um, integrative medicine and the advantages to not only treating the patient with medicine, um, you know, Western medicine, but also some of the holistic methodologies that are out there. Absolutely uh, critical. And I think we're learning more about this. I'll never forget when I was at Squibb and we were doing research in China and we were interviewing a cardiologist in Beijing and he had studied in the United States and he had the classic Western textbooks on cardiology and in the shelf next to it, all the Chinese herbal medicines. And he prescribed them both. And he said, particularly for his elderly patients who were used to more. In in fact, he said it was more difficult to get them to um, appreciate the Western medicine, the, the pills, if you will. I think as we begin to understand the impact of the mind on the body, Um, All of the mindfulness work that's being done now, yoga, my husband and I do do yoga. Um, We work with somebody not as regularly as as I'm I'm mindful about to do it, (laughs) but it's really wonderful and a de-stressor and making sure that we understand what that impact is because we don't know enough about it. That's right. We're just starting to explore it. That's right. Um, But I think all of that, we both exercise, we both... um, certainly fresh air, you know, getting out and walking and things like that. All of that that we begin to understand is part of wellness. So it's not just sickness and health, it's wellness. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, You know, I joke about the fact that I get stressed because I don't have time to be mindful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I don't yes. make the time that, for meditation and and people have said do it, you know, do it first thing in the morning. My husband's trying to meditate first thing in the morning. And then if he doesn't, he beats himself up about it. Right. And I said, but that's not the point. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. Right, right. 
Yeah. Um, how about spirituality? Is that a part of your life, your day to day? Yes. I don't go to church very often. I was raised as an Episcopalian. Um, and I say kiddingly, I certainly don't want to offend anyone. We, you know, Episcopalians don't do a lot of guilt. So, um, so I, but I did give up all cookies and brownies for Lent just because I thought it was good discipline. And I've sat in all these board meetings um, without it. But I can tell you that two weeks from yesterday, a quarter of eight in the morning, I'm going to have a, a, a date with a box of peeps. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're going to disappear. I love those things. But As well you that, should. That, you know, yes. they're very, all sugar. It's just wonderful. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, spirituality in terms of understanding certainly our role in the world and making a difference and giving back. I think a lot of that, um, I don't think you necessarily need a church or a synagogue to, to have that. My mother always um, believed in the golden rule, and, and um, I think there's a lot in that of do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. And I, I think if we really are mindful of our fellow human beings and of our planet, which I think is the only one we have so far, mm -hmm. um, as somebody said, certainly the only one with chocolate that we know of, right. um, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that to me is a spiritual way of looking at things. Yeah. It, it, it's an area we can't really neglect. We shouldn't, because I think, again, it's all part of the mind-body um, nexus, if you will, and the, the holistic health of the person. Yeah, something I find interesting, there was a, a show on last night, um, an astrophysicist, and I can't think of his Neil name. Neil deGrasse Tyson on yes! 60 Minutes. I was just yes! thinking of that when he showed the speck of the earth. This is us. That it's we a are. speck in, you know, and we're a teensy-weensy little speck under one of the huge rings of Saturn. And that does, that. that's exactly what I was thinking of as yeah. as I was saying it. It does put things in perspective. It does. It, 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 to me, it's a picture I think we should look at every day mm -hmm. to remind ourselves mm -hmm. how how small we really are. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, I think it would also help with some, you know, some of the egos that are out there, right? And sometimes, you know, managing those egos, Some I also find that a sense of humor helps, too, that if you can, Critical. you know, if you can just laugh at some of this stuff and let it go. Um, two of my favorite expressions are, don't let them rent space for free in your head, mm. which I like, and... For me, take the action, but then don't project the result. Once I, I have to do my part, but then I have to let it go because otherwise it will drive me crazy. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes I think quietly going about your work and accomplishing um, is just as um, advantageous as kind of saying, hey, look what I'm doing, right? If you, if you just continually do the right thing day in and day out, you'll see great results. I think so, and I think that's part of integrity and all of that, uh, that, making sure, what is it, someone said integrity is doing the right thing when no one's watching. Yes. But, yeah. you know, yeah. to, to also just say, is this, how would, how would I feel if this were done to me? Um, and if it's, if, if it's the right thing, uh, you know, I have to sleep with myself at night, um, my husband and a couple cats and, you know, but no matter what, I think we, we have to, if I'm comfortable with it, um, if I'm not, then I need to do something to change it. And that's on me. Yeah. Um, one thing I think we didn't talk about, you, you teach, do you not? Um, I lecture. I lecture okay. at Columbia and I lecture at um, University of the Sciences. 
Um, tell me about the the students and how you find them to be different today. Well, it, yeah, it's interesting. At Columbia, I lecture on market research and I'll usually and analytics, and I'll usually throw in a little bit about career. University of the Sciences, I talk about managing your career, and I always get a lot of questions and. Um, I en- always end up with one or two that, I, you know, I'll continue to talk with quasi-mentor, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the same at Columbia. I think the students are, um, you, if you unlock their curiosity, um, it's terrific. It's unbounded. But you have to get to them and you have to make sure that they're not glued to their screens also. Mm-hmm. I think it's more challenging today because I do think that the attention spans tend to be a little bit shorter and there's there are so many more opportunities for distraction. So I just feel as a lecturer, I have to get to them. I have to make sure it's interesting. Yeah. I have a lot of stories. Yeah, that is, that is a challenge because technology is extraordinary and gives us so many opportunities, but at the same time, it is um, it is a distraction. Um, we just have a minute left, Charlotte. The time always flies by. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I would love to, for you to give your contact information if, if one of the listeners wants to reach out and get in touch with you. Certainly. My email is charlotte, C-H-A-R-L-O-T-T-E, E- Two E's in a row, Sibley, S-I-B-L-E-Y. So Charlotte E. Sibley at gmail.com. And my mobile is 484-477-6668. How nice of you to give out your phone number. My pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much, Charlotte. Thank you, Sue. I really appreciate the time. It was a great show, and you're just full of great information and a wonderful career. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That's going to be it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Um, And I'd like to also give out our website again, our new website, which is womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net. And please stay tuned for the introduction of my wonderful new partner, Dr. Beth Dupree, on Monday, April the 6th. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week.